Open the Holy Scriptures with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Last Lord's Day I introduced this chapter. I gave you a simple outline of it. And I presented to you the principles necessary to guide the interpretation of this chapter if we want to arrive at the truth. Let's begin right into Romans chapter 11. I'll read to you the first ten verses, which by God's grace we might be able to cover this morning. I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away His people, which He foreknew. Wot ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. Amen and Amen. I appreciate the efforts already made this morning by my father, Brother Newell, Brother Zach, Brother David, in opening the worship of God. But let us turn our attention now to this 11th chapter and see what the Lord can show us here. And as I began a few minutes ago with Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24, let us be thankful that we see things that prophets and kings desired to see but could not see and that we hear things that they never heard. We are blessed abundantly. I say then, this is a typical rhetorical statement by the apostle. He often uses rhetorical questions or statements like this. You can see one in verse 7. What then? You can see this one again in verse 11. I say then. He's drawing a conclusion from what he has said. The doctrine that he's presented would naturally evoke some questions, so Paul asks those questions himself as an effective teacher. Due to Israel's near-universal rejection of the gospel, the question would arise, has God left and thrown away all the Jews? Consider the negative nature of how he began chapter 9 about them, that he had great sorrow in his heart. Now, there wouldn't be great sorrow unless there was something seriously wrong with Israel. And if you look at 27 through 29 of chapter 9, 
he describes them as only having a very small remnant to be saved. And he just progresses this way until he comes to the last five verses of chapter 10, where he quotes two prophecies from Moses and Isaiah that say that God's going to turn away from Israel and turn to the Gentiles. And so he needs to ask a question, and so he does ask it. It's this bold declaration that God was leaving the Jews to go to the Gentiles that Paul had just written in these last couple of verses of chapter 10 that he now raises the question, Hath God cast away His people? The nearly obvious conclusion, at least to a Jew, would be God's total rejection of all Israelites by the way that Paul has progressed up through the 21st verse of chapter 10. To nationalistic Jews, the nation was either saved or rejected. They couldn't comprehend an in-between position of saving some and rejecting others because they were God's people. Either God has gone back on His Word and is rejecting all of them, or He has to save all of them. That's just the way they thought about themselves. And so Paul's going to lay something on them that though he's already shown it, and though he's already quoted Scripture to prove it, was hard for them to believe and accept. The sense of this question, hath God cast away His people, is, hath God cast away all His people? Has God cast away all the Israelites? There's a sense on this it has to be all, not the sum, because Paul's going to defend his answer by just appealing to one. So we know that the question is, has God cast away all the Israelites? We conclude, or we rightly divide here, that his people are the Israelites that formed national Israel. We're going to make this choice by the election of grace that follows in verses 5 and 6, by the fact that we have elect in verses 7 through 11, and by the fact that we have an election later in verse 28 that is outside gospel faith. And so we're going to look at this as national Israel and the election or the casting away is being cast away from eternal life. The Israelites had a pedigree. They came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as such, there were promises that in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now the primary fulfillment of that seed was Christ, but there was also a fulfillment in the fact that God had a people, a nation that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they were his people. So the question is formed, hath God cast away his people? And when he asks about being cast away, he's referring to eternal life. Because the context here is the election of grace, and we're going to assume eternal salvation by that election of grace. Otherwise, we end up with a very difficult combination of an election of the election. And we're not going to do that because there's reasons why we don't. We're going to look at the fact that in verse 2 he refers to his foreknowledge. And that foreknowledge that results in God's people had been taught just recently in chapter 8 and it involved eternal life because it extends from God's purpose to his foreknowledge to glorification. And so we're going to understand this casting away that Paul is raising a question that Jews would say, would ask, has God rejected the entire nation and no one can be saved? Has he gone now to the Gentiles and rejected us, his people? So that's the question. And the apostle answers in the strongest language used in the New Testament, God forbid. God says no. God will not allow that to happen. No, that is not the case. And in God's name I say it's not the case. 
God forbid that you would think that God's cast away all His people and rejected them from eternal life. This is the strongest rebuttal possible against the supposition that all the Israelites have been rejected by God. No, they haven't all been rejected by God. And the apostle raises himself as a personal example that they weren't all rejected. No matter how dire the circumstances or the situation might be, God's always had His elect church in the earth. Consider the flood. When God looked upon the earth in the time of the flood, He said all the thoughts of man is are evil continually from His youth. Now that's pretty hopeless sounding. And then it says immediately, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah had found grace in God's sight, and God saved Noah and his family in large part because of Noah, based on what we're able to read. Paul had already quoted some scriptures earlier, but remember, this was a difficult thing for Jews to handle or accept. He starts off very gently by saying that there's an election within Israel. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel in 9.6. And then he quotes scripture in 25 through 29 of that chapter, that if God had not left us a very small remnant, the nation of the Israelites would have been made like Sodom and Gomorrah. Total wipeout of them. The destruction of Jerusalem provided a reprobate generation, but there were elect there. Because it tells us that Jesus taught in Matthew 24, except those days had been shortened, even the elect would have been deceived. And so he shortened those days for the sake of the elect, so that they were saved by the fact that he shortened the judgment on the rest of that nation. You know, though the Bible tells us the beast would prevail against us, the little horn of Daniel 7, the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2, though the beast would prevail, and it says so, there was a very small remnant. And God gave wings of an eagle to that remnant, so they were carried into the wilderness and preserved from the judgment that fell on the rest of Europe and by at the hands of that beast. The apostle defends the fact that he is saying, God forbid, God has not cast away or rejected all of Israelites from salvation because look at me. Look at the change in me. God's obviously had great grace in my life. And I love this little expression because he doesn't defend from numbers. He defends by himself. And I wish that you would look at election and look at thanks giving thanks to God for the fact that He elected you. And you reason back from your conversion. You look at the fact that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You love His words. You want to live by it. The Spirit speaks to your heart that you are a son of God. You reason back. That means you must be born again. And if you're born again, then you must be an elect child of God. And so you reason backward from yourself. And the apostle reasons from himself. For I also... You Israelites that are reading this epistle and you Israelites and you Jews that are hearing about this epistle and reading it later, don't think that God's cast away all of us, all of us, because I also am an Israelite. You're an Israelite and you're concerned about what I've written about the Jews, but I'm an Israelite and I'm sort of concerned myself, but I have the wisdom of God to tell you that I have been saved. Also, because there are those of you that are saved as well. And he goes on to say that he was of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. In a natural sense, he was those things. Verse 2, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. 
Now when it says God hath not cast away His people, which He foreknew, it helps us understand what kind of casting away it is and what kind of His people it is. It's Jews that were foreknown by God's foreknowledge in Romans chapter 8 and that will be glorified because there are none foreknown that will not be glorified. And they're of His people, the Jews. His people, we're referring to His people from a nationalistic standpoint that they are the Jews. God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. This is not and cannot be foreknowledge of what those people would do. Because just a few verses from now we're going to read, it is of grace and it cannot be by works. So there's no works involved in this of God foreknowing something. It's that God foreknew some people. Which He did foreknow is a pronoun referring back to His people. God hath not cast away His people that He foreknew. The ones among His people that He had foreknowledge of. And He taught us that in Romans 8. And when you look at Romans 8, and you always want to remember this, when someone tries to say that the foreknowledge of God means that God saw men that would invite Jesus into their heart, and so He chose and predestinated them. But it does not say for what God did foreknow. It says in Romans 8, 29, for whom He did foreknow. And yes, we lay stress on every word of God because every word of God is inspired and we're supposed to lay stress on every word of God. For whom He did foreknow. That is the key of election. God chose to know some people before the foundation of the world and He wrote their names in the book of life. For whom He did foreknow. God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. He foreknew people. And we want to remember that very carefully. We want to remember that that in the great day of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say to many, I never knew you. But His elect, He has known from eternity. He has known your name from eternity. It is engraved and written on the palms of His hands, according to Isaiah 49. He's loved us with an everlasting love. That is the foreknowledge of people. That He chose to know them in a loving, special, particular, relational way. Praise His glorious name. And it's proven by how we respond to the Gospel. There may be some exceptions, but we prove it to ourselves by the way we respond to the Gospel. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. If you believe the gospel, you can back into the fact that you were ordained to eternal life. And if you were ordained to eternal life, then you were predestinated to it. If you were predestinated to it, God has known you from eternity. And you are believing and you were predestinated and you were foreknown by his purpose in and toward you. And we could spend lots of more, many more verses looking at some of these things but you have been taught them before, especially when we went through chapter 8. Now here's he's going to give an example. And, the, and these three chapters have had some examples. You know, when we went back to Romans 9 and 6, and he gave that declaration, they are not all Israel which are of Israel, that there is a separation and a distinction to be made within the nation of Israel. When he did that, then he starts giving illustrations. And he gave two illustrations from the families of Abraham and Isaac. Then he uses Pharaoh. Then he defends it theologically. Then he quotes scripture to show that yes, there is a division. But it is so hard for the Jews to accept and believe this. 
he develops his argument slowly and he develops his argument thoroughly by repeating some of these things through these three chapters because it was a hard thing for them to hear, especially when it was not just that God may have rejected them, but that he had chosen the Gentiles instead of them. That was an overwhelming thought to a Jew who all their lives had been taught that they were superior to the Gentiles. So he raises an illustration for us. What ye not? There in chapter 11 and verse 2, What ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias? And let me chase a little rabbit right here. If you do not learn the Bible well, confusion and heresy are going to result from imperfect knowledge. You have got to learn the Bible. I have got to learn the Bible. We have got to learn the Bible together. What ye not? Don't you know? Ye do err, not understanding the Scriptures. How many times did Jesus say that to Pharisees who knew the letter of the Scriptures very well? And so the what ye not is about the same. Don't you know the Scriptures? Think. When the case appears hopeless for Israel... He still had his elect remnant within the nation. And if you knew your Bibles, you wouldn't be asking me the question that I asked rhetorically in verse 1. We want to know our Bibles. What ye not what the Scripture saith. Confusion and heresy result from imperfect knowledge. You know, recently, I showed you the identity of Elijah the prophet in Malachi 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. And we looked at Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 1, and it is so simple. But you know what that comes from? Reading the Bible and thinking about what you're reading. So that we read Matthew 11 and we saw that Jesus said, This is Elias, which was for to come. And if you have ears to hear, hear it. And if he will accept it, accept it. And Matthew 17... Notice the errors that people can get into. There are so many people today, the majority of Christians who even have a position on Elijah, because the vast majority of them wouldn't even know that there's an Elijah prophesied. But the ones that know there's an Elijah prophesied think that Elijah is literally coming back to be one of two witnesses on the earth in some time after the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And so they go on and spin this wild yarn about what they think is going to come to pass just because they don't know the Scriptures. Let's make sure we know the Scriptures. Jesus condemned even preachers in His day for their Bible ignorance, and He did it over and over. Have ye not read? Have ye not read? Of course they had read it. They had memorized it. They could probably quote it to Him backwards. They could tell Him the number of words in each verse or each sentence. Have ye never read? Have ye not read? Because that is constantly a problem of ignorance of Scripture. And we don't want to be ignorant of Scripture, so we need to apply ourselves to it. Now our brother stood up here a few minutes ago and told us from in eight verses from Psalm 119 of how wonderful the Word of God is and how precious it was like great spoil to David. David had lots of things in the worship of God, but he loved his words. And we should love his words. So why ye not? And we get an illustration taken from 1 Kings 19. How Elijah made intercession to God against Israel. The Bible describes another generation and another situation where there might not have been any, or very many, elect. Because when Elijah looked around, and you know, sometimes a minister can have his perception distorted a little bit by discouragement. And uh, 
I'm thankful that the Bible tells me in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Right. He wasn't quite as bad as Jonah, but he had his problems. Because in 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 14, he tells the Lord, Lord, they've killed thy prophets. It's verse 3 here in Romans 11. They've killed thy prophets. They've digged down thine altars. And I am the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. Because Jezebel had just said, let the gods do to me, and more so, if I don't make you like one of those prophets of Baal, about this time tomorrow. You've got 24 hours, buddy, and I'm going to make you look like the 400, prophet, 400 prophets of Baal that you just killed at the brook Kidron. And so he goes into the wilderness away, and he sits down in 1 Kings 19. If you read it last evening in preparation, verses 10 and 14, he says, there's, the whole nation has gone to pot. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. You know, prophets can get discouraged like that. Some God, sometimes God's ministers, they have similar passions to Elijah, may not see the good for all the evil that's around them. Elijah was sick of Israel and the compromise and outright wickedness by the people and its leaders. But you know what? If you go back and read 1 Kings 19 and 1 Kings 18... He knew, and he had just met, within 24 hours, the man Obadiah, who had saved a hundred prophets of God, and had kept them in a cave. Well, now, what can make you so blind that you can't see that there are some faithful people who still want to serve the Lord? That weak spirit in men that gets discouraged too easily and forgets the faithfulness of God, and forgets that in a time of religious persecution, or in a time of religious heresy, righteous men hide themselves. So they're not very visible. You know, they used to call the Republican Party and conservatives in this country the silent majority. We don't want to deal with the word majority, but we can use the word silent, that sometimes God's elect are silent and they're not out there handing out tracts on the street that anybody worshiping Baal is on their way to hell. You know, they're at home telling their children that. And see, God knew about those 7,000 homes where the dads would sit down at the table and tell their children about the religion of Baal and what God thought of that religion. And so they had the religion of Jehovah's secret. But listen, we got to keep moving or we're going to be in serious trouble here. I just want to point out, as you think about Elijah, I want you to remember that within 24 hours, he had met Obadiah and knew about him preserving a 100 prophets. But for the moment, he thinks that the case is hopeless. And so verse 3 is a hopeless statement. Lord, they've killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And they were seeking his life. Jezebel was after him. You know, the Bible tells us over there that he had to repair the altar of God in order to have that sacrifice where he put the moat around it and filled it with 12 barrels of water and called fire down from heaven. He had to rebuild it because they had torn down the altars of God. And Jezebel was indeed after him. Verse 4, But what saith the answer of God unto him? That was 1 Kings 19 and verse 18. Remember, God God came to him with a great wind. He's in a cave. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and shortening up 1 Kings 19. A great wind, an earthquake, a fire, and a still small voice. And as soon as he heard the still small voice, Elijah wrapped his mantle around himself and stepped out of that cave because he knew that God was there. He was a prophet of God, and he knew that God was there to speak to him. 
And so God asks him again, what in the world are you doing and what are you whining about? And he gives the same statement, the whole nation's gone to pot, I'm the only one that's left and they're trying to kill me. Well, here are my plans. My plans are for you to go back and anoint a new king of Syria. My plans are for you to go back and anoint a new king of Israel. And my plans are for you to go back and anoint a new prophet. Whoever the king of Syria, Haziel, doesn't kill, Jehu, the king of Israel that you're going to anoint, is going to kill. And whoever Jehu doesn't kill, Elisha will kill. Right. Don't worry, we've got some, we got revival coming. Right. And it's not the revival that people mostly think of. And he says all that, then he says, and by the way, I have 7,000 men that have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal nor kissed his image. Right. And so from that illustration, we want to always remember Scripture. Yeah. What ye not. That just that haunts me. The way you can make an error in the Bible is to not know the Word of God. The Word of God is written in such a way, and it's going to, we're going to be reminded of it in the second service today, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Nothing that you find in the Word of God should be pulled out and made separate, alone, or individual from the rest of what's taught. Well, the only way that you can avoid doing that is to know the rest of what's taught. You say, well, I'll go look in a commentary because they know what was taught. (laughs) But they've already got a set of presuppositions and an agenda of their denomination that they're writing for. That's not good enough. You need to know the Scriptures. And God hasn't put the same burden and responsibility upon you that He has put upon me. So after you've given yourself to 15 minutes of Bible reading or 30 minutes of Bible reading and meditation in your home, do you know what you could do in two minutes that would be most useful for you? Pray for me. Pray for me. And I'll give myself diligently to try to share the Word of God with you in a way that the Lord won't have to say to us, What ye not? Have ye not read? Oh, those words terrify me. The Pharisees, you ought to read about the Pharisees in Scripture. I mean, they had it in a box on their forehead. They had it strapped onto their arms. And they had memorized that stuff inside, outside, upside, downside. They knew the Old Testament Scriptures so thoroughly. They kissed the book. They loved the book. And they thought that by memorizing the book, they could get their way to heaven. But they didn't know the Savior that the book talked about. It's amazing how blind they were. And we do not want to be blind. So, in verse 2, God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. God has elect children of God among the nation of Israel. God has not cast them all away. God has not rejected them all from salvation. Remember an illustration from the Bible about Elijah. How he thought that it was hopeless and that they were all gone and that he was the only one left, but it was not the case. There were 7,000 families, 7,000 men described here that have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal. So we come to verse 5. Even so then, even so, meaning in the exact same way of God's choice of reserving some to Himself, because notice verse 4, I have reserved to Myself. I like that. You know, it's not that men make reservations with God or that men make reservations for heaven. It's that God makes reservations of men for Himself. I have reserved 7,000 favorites of mine that are saved. They have not bowed to Baal. They hate Baal as much as you do. And I have reserved them to me. 
Nothing's going to happen to them. I have reserved. When God makes a reservation, how, many, how who do you think is going to cancel the reservation? And we thank God for that. The wonderful language. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. I just want to throw something out here for those of you that want the details. When it says the present time, I want you to be thinking about the fact that there was a transitional generation that was more important than any other generation. Paul did not say, even so then, there will be in the future a generation of saved Jews. Or anything like that. He is talking about something right then, right then during that period of Reformation, when the transition was being made from Jews to Gentiles. Even so, it's gonna, this is going to come back to help us in the future, that if you notice all the time designations in Romans chapter 9, it is not a prophecy of 2,000 years, but a prophecy of what was taking place right then in the generation that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophecies are being fulfilled from the Old Testament. He's about to quote them. We're about to look at them. And so he says, even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. A remnant. When you go to a carpet store and ask for a remnant, what is it? A small piece that is left over from a giant roll. A giant roll that may have had 10,000 square feet on it. You now can look at something that's only 140 square feet. 10 by 14 or even smaller than that. It's just a small piece of what the whole was. And sometimes in the Bible, the word remnant is used for the remnant part of a curtain, the remnant part of a nation, the remnant part of an army, the remnant part of a table of food. Just a small leftovers. And so even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. A small part of the original whole. When you think about Israel in the days of Elijah, we don't know their population because we don't have a census for that year, but the population was between one and two million people. 7,000? Make it families. Times five, 35,000. Still very small. For those of you that read Isaiah 6 last night, what was the fraction that was used to describe the elect remnant within Israel? A tenth. Small. And you know, you look over at chapter 9, and it says, a remnant in verse 27, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, that's the one to two million, a remnant shall be saved. That's verse 27. And then you come to verse 29, and as Isaiah, that's Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed. But when you go back to Isaiah chapter 1, do you know what it's called? A very small remnant. A very small remnant. So even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. We understand this election of grace to be the election of men to everlasting life. That among the Jewish nation, there were those that were saved by the election of grace. When we go to Ephesians chapter 1, we read that according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, and it goes on to describe being predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, and we were made accepted in the beloved according to the good pleasure of his grace. Amen. When we go to Ephesians chapter 2, they were born again, they were quickened according to his grace. By grace ye are saved, referring to that regenerative work of God upon the elect of God. 
You know, we want to be thankful for there being a remnant. When we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it describes the man of sin working with all deceivableness and unrighteousness, and so many are following the man of sin, and it says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Even so, then at this present time, there is a remnant. And brethren, there's a remnant today in the world. And we trust that we are part of that remnant, and we give God all the glory. We can take no praise to ourselves, no pride to ourselves. We have to give God all the glory for the fact that we are His remnant. There's a remnant scattered abroad throughout this earth, whether it's 7,000 or 70,000. And when God uses numbers like seven and rounds them off at 1,000, you know, you, you should learn to understand certain things about the Bible that some, some language is general to give us a picture of a very small group of men that were saved and kept by the power of God, reserved by Him to Himself in the nation of Israel then and in Paul's generation as well and in our generation today. And we want to be thankful. We want to look at that fifth verse. Even so then, just like in those days when Elijah looked around and said, there's no one left. I'm the only one left. We don't want to get like that. Sometimes we feel like that because we have passions like he did. But we want to realize God's reserved to himself, his people, even in this generation. Verse 6. It's called the election of grace in verse 5. And then verse 6 gives us a wonderful definition of grace. You know, for those who don't believe in election, you can take them to Romans 11. You're used to taking them to Romans 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The word predestination is used twice in Ephesians 1, twice in Romans 8, nowhere else. That's where you go. Romans 8 and Ephesians chapter 1 for predestination. You go to Romans 8 for election. You go to Romans 9 for the potter having power over the clay, making vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And you go to Romans chapter 11 because it says, even so then, at this present time there is an election of grace and that God has reserved some men to Himself. And so we see God's electing grace. But look at verse 6. It helps us understand what grace means by by defining the words grace and works in respect to each other. They're mutually exclusive words. Grace and works are mutually exclusive, meaning there can't be any works in grace and there can't be any grace in works. When you work for something, then the other party is in debt to you and has to pay you. There's no grace involved in that. But when, when the other party does something that is gracious towards you, that is, they just do it out of the sheer goodness of their heart when you are undeserving. That's why we call grace unmerited favor, or better yet, demerited favor. There's no works involved. And the apostle, by the Holy Spirit in the sixth verse, reasons from the definitions of words that you're supposed to know without a dictionary. Works does not include grace, and grace does not include works. If it's by grace... Now, when he says, if it's by grace, he's not doubting the fact he is going to pursue an argument for your benefit for one verse. He knows it's by grace because he just told you in verse 5, it is by grace. Even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it's by grace, let's assume that what I said in 5 is true. If it's by grace, then is it no more of works? There's no works involved in it. Otherwise... Grace is no more grace. Grace, and what that word means, cannot allow or tolerate any works. 
Therefore, if it's of grace, there can't be any works involved. Then he reverses that and says it the opposite way. But if it be of works, let's assume for a minute that the election in verse 5 is by works. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? There can't be any grace involved. Otherwise, work is no more work because the definition of work means there's nothing gracious done in the matter. It is an economic exchange. You work for it, and I paid you wages for what you earned. Wonderful little verse. Mm -hmm. Romans 11.6. It's the definition of God's election. How it occurs, it's by grace, not by works. And so when we think about being God's elect... There is nothing in us that caused God to elect us. It is purely by His gracious choice. So we began this morning in Luke chapter 10 and verse 21 where Jesus rejoiced in His Spirit and said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, You've made this difference. You have hid these things from the wise and prudent and You revealed them to babes. Verse 7, What then? What conclusion can we draw then from what's been said? God hasn't cast away the whole nation, but He's cast away a a large part of it, and He's reserved to Himself a remnant, and that has been all by grace. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which He seeketh for. National Israel had an interest in something because they had been taught all their lives for 1,500 years to be looking for something and seeking something and trying to secure something. And we've been taught what that is right here in Romans 9 and 10. We don't have to look very far. What did national Israel want to achieve? What had they been taught under the law of Moses to seek? For 1,500 years, righteousness before God. Righteousness before God is what they had been taught to achieve. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. When Israel wanted to be righteous, they knew the book of Job, they knew the book of Moses, they knew about justification, but it was he that doeth these things shall live by them. It was the righteousness to stand before God by the law, but they couldn't keep it. But they were seeking a righteous standing before God because that's what they were told to have. And every year, all those sacrifices were pointing to the fact that God had to forgive sin. And every year on the Day of Atonement in the seventh month, they weren't forgiven because they had to do it again. They were constantly thinking about sin and righteous standing before God. And so it says, Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. They understood that to have a righteous standing before God, they had to keep the law of Moses, but they couldn't keep it. So they didn't achieve righteousness. Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Look at chapter 10. Verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That particular verse is about God's elect, but it was true of the whole nation. Because some of God's elect were locked into some of the blindness of the whole nation of trying to be justified by the law of Moses. If you go back, you can go back throughout the chapters that we've already studied. If you go back to chapter 2, Behold, thou art called a Jew, verse 17, and restest in the law, 
and makest thy boast of God, and knowest His will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And it goes on and describes the Jews as putting their trust in the law for a righteous standing before God. So when it says in Romans 11, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. We understand this to be national Israel seeking to have a righteous standing before God. And they have not obtained that which they sought. They sought for eternal life, but they sought for it through Moses' law. They sought for it in the the pages of Scripture without worrying about the Savior the Scripture talked about. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, Search the Scriptures. You have them on your forehead. You have them on your arm. You know them well. You memorize them from childhood. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. But they are they which testify of me. Israel sought for eternal life. Israel sought for Abraham's bosom. Israel sought for what Abraham sought for, a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, a heavenly country. They sought for righteousness before God, but they did not obtain it. Why didn't they obtain it? According to Romans chapter 11, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. What did the elect elect obtain? They obtained everlasting life by Jesus Christ our Lord. By God choosing them in Christ Jesus before the world began, they obtained, the election obtained it. The whole nation wanted it. The election got it. The rest were blinded. The rest were reprobate, weren't elect, weren't saved. Part of the bulk of the nation by this time that wasn't God's elect. And then God also blinded them. The election hath obtained it. Remember, up there in verse 2 it said about this election. It doesn't say elect yet in verse 2. But it says, God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. People that God foreknew are described in Romans 8 as already having glorification in the past tense because their eternal life was so secure. But if God has not cast away His people which He foreknew, then the people which He did cast away, He did not foreknow. They're not elect. And so to this point, we are dealing with the bulk, the whole nation, and we're finding within it a people that He foreknew They were his elect remnant. They obtained what the whole nation wanted, and that was eternal life, but only the election obtained it. The rest did not obtain it. God did not foreknow them. They were not in the election. They were passed over by God, and then God blinded them. Now, see, God doesn't have to blind men that are naturally blind, but he does it throughout the pages of Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, When it describes us Gentiles and and our ancestors, in Romans chapter 1, it says, whose foolish heart was darkened, and they didn't worship the Creator, but they worshiped the creature instead. You know, they were blind themselves. Though, Though the natural creation made them without excuse because there was sufficient evidence for the existence of God, they didn't believe it, but then God gave them over to a reprobate mind. He gave them over to a reprobate mind so that there would be some punishment upon them visible for all men to see in this life. So that they did things that were not convenient, as the Bible describes sodomy and a list of other sins along with it. He caused them to to do abominable things with each other's bodies in judgment by rewiring their heads. 
because they weren't thankful. So even though there's a blindness that is true by nature of every single one of Adam's descendants, there is further blindness that God gives some to drive them even farther away from Him because they do not receive the truth that God offered them. Like those with the man of sin. Why does it say God sent them strong delusion for them to believe a lie? They already believed a lie. But God sent them strong delusion to believe another lie that the man in pajamas sitting in Rome is Peter's successor and the vicar of Jesus Christ. And to believe that statues of Mary around the world weep. And that a cracker turns into God and all the other abominations of that system of religion come by God's further blinding because He says He sends them strong delusion. Why did He send them strong delusion? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. Why didn't they receive the love of the truth? Because they were already blind to the truth. But He made them blinder so as to expose them further by their antagonism toward the truth. And is there a difference between the Catholic Church and Catholics who know their religion, and Bible Christians, it is an antagonism between those two parties. Verse 7, what then? What conclusion can we draw of what's been said so far? Overall Israel, national Israel, hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Of national Israel, the elect have obtained everlasting life by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the rest did not, were not foreknown, were not elect, were not part of the remnant, and were further blinded. And then the apostle, in order to back up that statement, has two quotations, one from Isaiah 29 and verse 8, and one from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23, in verses 9 and 10. Please note that verse 8 is for the most part in parentheses, and the reason it's in parentheses is because Paul's words finish at the end of verse 8, where there are three words, unto this day. His statement of verse 7 is finished with the final three words of verse 8. And you can leave out the parenthetical information for the moment to see the flow of his thought. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. He, being a collective singular male pronoun used for the whole nation, the nation has not obtained what they sought for, but the election, the elect part of the nation did obtain it, and the rest were blinded unto this day. This blinding that God had promised upon the nation promised so many times and quoted so many times by Jesus and the apostles, was still true unto the day that Paul was writing this. The generation, the transitional generation that Paul was dealing with here in, say, 60 A.D. So the words unto this day apply back to Paul's statement that the non-elect, the rest, isn't that a horrible word? I hate the four-letter word rest. I hate it in the sense of I'm thankful that I'm not one of the rest. That's what I mean by that. That word should just bother you. The rest. The rest. Because if you're not elect, if God hasn't chosen you, and if God hasn't reserved you to Himself, what's a word for them here? The rest. What's a word for them elsewhere? Reprobates. What's a word for them in chapter 9? Vessels of dishonor. Vessels of wrath. Thank you, Lord for not leaving us and passing over us and leaving us to be the rest. 
Verse 8, in parentheses, is a quotation from Isaiah 29 and verse 10. According as it is written, the Apostle Paul knew something we should never forget. When we present truth to people, we better back it up with Scripture. We don't tell them, well, this is what we believe. Who cares what we believe? Who cares what you believe? Who cares what I believe? What does the Bible say? And the Apostle does that whenever he writes, especially when he's writing a certain nation, the Jews. The book of Romans and the book of Hebrews has so many as the Scripture saith, as Isaiah saith, as it is written in O.C., meaning Hosea. In, in Hebrews, it's amusing. He'll, he'll start one quotation, and then when he gets to the end of that, he'll say, and again, and again, and again, because he's just multiplying Scripture upon Scripture to prove to Hebrews who knew that it better agree with the Old Testament because they knew that the Old Testament Scriptures were indeed the words of God. And so the Apostle does that right here. Now he has just said the nation doesn't get saved. An elect part of the nation gets saved and the rest are blinded and your Scriptures taught you that. He'd already done this once before in the four verses, Romans 9, 25-29. As he saith in O.C. in verse 25, and and, and Isaiah in verse 27. There are four passages of Scripture quoted in those five verses in Romans 9 where he did the same thing. But as he progresses in this slowly developing argument presented to Jews, which it was hard for them to take this, he backs it up with Scripture. According as it is written from Isaiah 29, God hath given them the spirit of slumber. He's put them to sleep. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. It's God that did this. God puts men to sleep so that they do not recognize that a timed prophecy out of Daniel chapter 9 had reached its terminal point with the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. The 70th week of Daniel had started. They all had calendars. They knew. Why does it say that there were those in Jerusalem Waiting for redemption. Because they understood there were time prophecies coming to a conclusion. Why did John the Baptist open his mouth in the wilderness around the Jordan River and say, the time is fulfilled. But they were blind to it. Jesus would mock them by saying, you can look at the sun and know what kind of weather it's going to be tomorrow, but you can't see that your own Messiah is here. (coughs) Why couldn't they? Because as... Isaiah had prophesied of them. God had put them to sleep. You know, God can keep men from sleep. God can put men to sleep. And God can teach men while they sleep. I love our God. But I don't want Him to put me to sleep. So we better be faithful in believing and loving and living what He does show us. And He won't put us to sleep. He'll show us more. To him that hath shall be given, but him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he thinketh to have. The sleep here is spiritual. He had so dulled their senses that they missed their own Messiah. And this righteous judgment, if you go back and look at Isaiah 29, is because of their hypocrisy. They were teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, and they were worshiping him with their mouth, but not with their hearts. Eyes that should not see. 
This clause describes blindness and ignorance of spiritual things by God withholding sight and light to understand. If God does not give us sight and God does not enlighten us by His Holy Spirit, we cannot see. Therefore, when you sit down with the Bible, you should pray prayers like this. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Because it is up to God to give you sight and to give you light. And then you go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where it says the same thing, that the, that the Spirit of God, and it's worded this way, may give unto you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Amen. God has to give sight, then God has to give light. God has to, when you're in a dark room, it doesn't matter if you have 20-20 vision, if you're in a dark room, you can't see what furniture is in that room. You can't read anything in that room. You need sight and light, and the Bible describes both as being a blessing of God. And that's why Jesus said, you have hid these things from the wise and prudent. They couldn't see because they'd been made blind. And it's amazing. Do you know, you know, I, I, I try to repeat these things to you so that you'll use them as, as crutches. Spiritual crutches, scriptural crutches for your faith. Do you understand that less than 5% of those that call themselves Christians can even figure out the mode of baptism? Do you know that less than 10% can figure out the subject of baptism, meaning who should be baptized? And when you combine the two together, there's only a few percentage of those that call themselves Christians that baptize correctly. The simplest doctrine in the Bible. How many understand Elijah the prophet? How many understand the order of the second coming of Christ versus the revelation of the Antichrist? The Bible says Jesus Christ will come after the Antichrist. That He cannot come until the Antichrist is revealed. And yet all of them want to talk about a rapture where Jesus comes first, then the Antichrist comes. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we could multiply these arguments almost indefinitely. Jesus said, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. In Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, how many of them can handle that? Hardly anyone. And so we think about God giving the spirit of slumber to men and God closing their eyes so that they cannot see and closing their ears so that they cannot hear. And we are humbled before Him. There are so many verses that we could go to when the apostles asked the Lord Jesus, Why are you speaking in parables? In Matthew 13, he quotes Isaiah 6. As he quote, that passage is used about six times in the New Testament. That he's blinded the eyes and closed up the ears and hardened the hearts of men that they would not hear, would not see, would not understand and be converted and I should heal them or save them. That is Isaiah 29 that is in verse 8. Romans chapter 11 and verse 9. And David saith, Now, I want you to see this one. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And David saith. Sometimes it says God saith. Scripture saith. David saith. Sometimes it's referring to the one who did the inspiring. Sometimes it's referring to the one that was inspired. And sometimes it's referring to what was inspired. From the one that was inspired by the one that does the inspiring. I love Scripture. Amen. And it's all equal. Sometimes the, the apostle just wants you to know who wrote it so that you can find it more easily. Psalm 69, verse 22. 
Let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not and make their loins continually to shake. Now, is this about this generation? Without what Paul said it was, so we already know that. But going back to Psalm 69, look at verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Do you need help understanding who that's written about? Okay, good. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. How about verse 8? I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. The Lord Jesus Christ. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 2. And the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Romans 15. The Lord Jesus Christ. This is a messianic psalm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, what they did to him, and what he is going to do to them. And so I read to you verses 22 and 23. Watch how it continues. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was smitten of God and afflicted. And they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Does that help you understand what kind of a reprobation this is? By reading the rest of that prophecy. Let's come back to Romans 11. So that was Psalm 69. Verse 9 now of Romans 11. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare. Now when we look at the word table, you know we've got a table over here, we've got a table in the back, and you've got a table at home, and you've got end tables, and you've got coffee tables, and you've got bedside tables. But what in the world is this table? Is it a bedside table or a dining table? Or a communion table? Or is it some other table? Let's think about the fact that, you know, luxurious fare is put in a table. Psalm 23 says, The Lord prepareth a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. What is that? He puts fare out. What does Lady Wisdom say in Proverbs chapter 9? But she's mingled her wine and set her table for those that want to come and eat a fare. And you know, we can look at that and say, well, it could mean that, and it could mean that, and it may mean that indirectly. I want you to remember a verse that we read about Israel when it says that Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Prosperity did the opposite for Jews that it should have done. The goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance. And right now, instead of just thinking about the Jews and a couple of things I'm going to say, I want you to be thinking about what has God put in your life that is for your welfare? that you let get out of its proper place in your life, think last Sunday, second service. One thing about desire to the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What has God given you for your welfare that gets out of proportion in your life? Is it your wife or your husband? Is it your children? Is it your house? Is it your job? Is it your bodily exercise? What is it that should have been for your welfare? Bodily exercise profiteth little, but when you put too much emphasis on it, it will destroy your soul. 
Because godliness is profitable unto all things. Those words are not here in Romans 11. Those words were in Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Let their table be made a snare. There's another table. There are banking tables and finance tables and commerce tables and merchandising tables. Two times in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, He had to go into the temple and drive out the, I need the title of the job they had the money changers, and tip over their tables. They were finance tables where they exchanged currencies of different provinces of people coming in to buy sacrifices for temple worship. And it's called their tables, and the Lord Jesus Christ had to deal with their tables. And when we were in Psalm 69, and verses 22 and 23 referred to tables, what else was in that chapter that I just had you read up in verse 9? Did it talk about the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up? What, where was that quoted in the New Testament? John chapter 2, when he drove out the money changers. Those tables. And that table is repeated down there in the 22nd and 23rd verses of Psalm 69. God had told Israel to be lenders. Finance was a part of their pedigree and their occupation by God's choice in the beginning. Because it should have been for their welfare. They were supposed to lend to all nations and take usury of them. When the Bible condemns usury, it condemns usury to poor brethren that you should be willing to loan to without usury. But to other nations, God expected Israel to be the head and them to be the tail, and Israel would do the wagging by being the creditor and loaning money to debtors. It teaches that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'm not going to turn you to the verses, but they're in both places. I do want you to see the book of Hosea and see this table that was a problem for the Jews and the deceits and the occupation that was a trouble to them. For anyone that, you know, you don't even have to study Jewish history to know this fact about Jews. When the expression is used, did you Jew them down? What is that referring to? Driving a tight bargain financially. Why is it described as, did you Jew them down? Who are the stingiest people on earth? By scripture and by experience. The Jews. Who have been the financiers of nations, especially in the, in the West, in Europe, over generations and centuries. The Jews. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 7. He is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. This is a description of Israel. And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. In all my labors they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. I am God's chosen people and my business is making money. Hosea 12, 7 and 8. Look at the book of Amos. It's over to the right, just a few pages. Amos chapter 8. Another prophet gives another warning about them. Verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn? You know, you couldn't do certain things on Sabbath days. And a Sabbath day to a Jew was a terrible event because you couldn't be engaged in business. When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great 
and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. When you read the New Testament, do you remember that the Jews would swear by the gold of the temple? And you were bound to that oath. But if you swore by the temple, which is the house of God, no big deal. Did you know that in legal paper documents of those days, if the oath, or verbally, if the oath was by the gold of the temple, you were bound to keep that oath. But if it was just by the temple, meaning the house where God was worshipped, the Lord Jehovah was worshipped, you were not bound to that oath. Matthew 23. If you swore by the sacrifice that was on an altar, because a sacrifice costs money, you were bound to your oath. But if you swore by the altar of God, it was not binding. The Lord Jesus Christ would say at the conclusion of that little description, how in the world can you be so mistaken to think that the temple doesn't matter and the God that is worshipped in that temple by appealing to the gold? What happened to a rich young ruler? When he confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ about selling his goods and giving it to the poor, he went away sorrowful. And what did Jesus say? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ had to rebuke the Pharisees for their covetousness in a number of places. They let their table... And when we try to think about what table can be under consideration here, there was a table that pertained to the Jews, and we all know what that table is, with just a little bit of encouragement to ask you, what trade have the Jews been known for for 2,000 years? Bankers. And that which should have been for their welfare, because God gave it to them for their welfare. They were to loan to other nations and take the usury from other nations. That's when they obeyed God. God was going to make them the head and the other nations the tail. He said, when you disobey me, I'm going to make you the tail and others the head. Was his promise to them. Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. Now these words are not exact from Psalm 69. This is Holy Spirit privilege of telling us, using slightly different words for us to get the fullest sense. And by reading Psalm 69 and by reading Romans 11, we can put the two together and they're beautiful. Let the table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. A recompense. When God puts on your head what you thought you were going to do to others, you abuse others some way and God brings that judgment down in your own head. We had a proverb this week about it, 2515. Psalm 9 says the Lord wants to be known by the judgment that he executes that when a man does something, God's going to bring it down in his own pate. His own head. God wants to be known for that. Remember the judgment of sodomy in Romans chapter 1 is a just recompense for those that didn't want to worship the true and living God. It's perfect for them to go around like dogs defiling each other because it's a perfect recompense. It's a perfect reward. It's a perfect wage for them rejecting the Creator to serve and worship the creature. And so here come the Jews thinking that they have no sin. They're God's people. They can be the merchants of the earth and get rich and they lose the real riches. 12, verse 12 of Romans 11. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world 
and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles. Are you excited, brother? Thank you. Where's, where's the real riches? It's in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and in His church and kingdom. That's, that's not for today, though. That's coming. Notice, it's the riches of the world. What do they mean by the world? It's just another, it's a, it's a term describing the Gentiles that are elect and that are converted and made, and, and build again the tabernacle of David. And so these that made riches their object and riches their distraction and riches the eye of a needle that kept them out of the kingdom of heaven. They thought they were rich. They were poor. God turned them into beggars. Still thinking that it's by the law of Moses that you make your way to heaven instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, losing the kingdom because it's given to Gentiles. Let their table be a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. It's a fit judgment. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back alway. In Psalm 69, that 10th verse is said to be, let their loins continually shake. What else has been true about Jews for 2,000 years? Constantly afraid. Because wherever they went, they were persecuted. Let their loins continually shake. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, would say, and bow down their back alway. Those who think they are the lords and masters of finance are bowed down like servants with burdens on their back. And bow down their back alway. When it says alway, how many of those that are the rest in Romans, the first ten verses, are going to be saved when it says bow down their back alway. When you go to Psalm 69 and you read past verse 23 and you read verses 24 through 28 and he says, add iniquity to their iniquity, let them not be written with the righteous. How many? When? None. Ever. And so we come to it, we make a conclusion of how we're going to divide the first 10 chapters of Romans 11 and that it is national Israel for eternal life into the election and into the rest. The election hath obtained it, the rest did not, and we're blinded. And we have prophecies from Isaiah and Psalm defending the Apostle Paul as he reveals truth here about the situation in Israel. Are you thankful today? Are you thankful today for election by grace? How do you know that you haven't been cast away? How do you know that you're not part of the rest? Because you see and believe and love and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the conversion in your life, back up to its regeneration, back up to the election, and know that you were chosen the election of grace to be part of the remnant of Almighty God. And it is all of grace and there are no works involved. It is not by anything in you, your family, or but God's grace towards you. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for seeing the truth, recognizing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ? We started out with that passage, and I've mentioned it now several times. Luke 10, verses 21 through 24. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Many prophets and many kings have desired to see these things and have not seen them. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. Are you thankful for seeing and hearing and recognizing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel and so many aspects of it that He has revealed to us? Do not let anything of this life become a trap, a snare, or a stumbling block to you that should have been for your welfare. A wife should be for your welfare. But can you let a spouse become too important in your life so that you are not what you should be? 
Does 1 Corinthians 7 say that those that be married should be as though they were not married? Does it talk about trading and merchandising and business in 1 Corinthians 7? Do you know? I'm not turning it to it because I'm out of time. But do you know that it says that you should not let it abuse you. You should use it in its proper place. Your job, your profession, your education, your home, your garden, your flower bed, your home decorating, your children, your bodily exercise. Those things should be for your welfare when they're in their proper place. But even those things that should be for our welfare, when they're allowed to get out of their proper place in our lives, can become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block to us. And a recompense. Oh, so that's what they prefer. They want children. They want a family instead of the family of God. And then God turns our world upside down with our children. Oh, they value their health. I'll turn their health upside down. It'll be a recompense to them. Right. Lord, Help us to see the true riches. Do you know what the true riches are? That we're in this house this morning, and we have heard the word of God, and we are with brethren of like precious faith. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the election of grace, and Jesus is coming for us soon. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.